Welcome to the Creative Agency Account Manager podcast with me, Jenny Plant from Account Management Skills Training. I'm on a mission to help those in agency client service keep and grow those existing client relationships so your agency business can thrive. Welcome to episode 105. I've invited two of my most popular guests back for a second time, sales trainer legends Marcus Kalki and Benjamin Denahay. I'll introduce them both in a moment, but for some context, both have been sales trainers for years and have also worked with a lot of agencies and tech companies. And they're going to share some golden nuggets to help you with selling your agency services. I had to um, throw away the list of questions for this one and let the conversation flow naturally because I wanted to capture as much of their collective sales wisdom and tips as possible. And I'm hoping you'll enjoy the longer length of this particular episode and ultimately come away with some practical things you can implement in your sales process. It's difficult to know where to start with summarizing what we spoke about, but what I can tell you is more than anything else, by the end of this, you'll come away with an understanding of the massive importance of having the ability to ask superb questions during your sales conversations with prospects. And to help you do that, Marcus and Benjamin role play a conversation and hopefully you can take some of the principles away and model some of the language they're using for your next sales conversation with a prospect. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Let's go over to the introduction now. Today, I have two titans of the sales training industry as my guests. Both are invited back for the second time, and we all know each other from old. So I'm really looking forward to a lively discussion and some unfiltered debate about sales and selling. So a quick intro to both. Marcus Kalki is a good friend, my original sales mentor, and the person who actually inspired me to teach selling skills to frontline account managers. He's also the host of the Inquisitor podcast, where he interviews the brightest minds in sales and also continues to try train and coach individuals and sales organizations around the world. Benjamin Dennehy is known as the UK's most hated sales trainer. Like Marcus, he is a veteran in the sales training industry and has trained hundreds of people in sales in multiple sectors and countries. He runs his own boot camps and coaching programs for salespeople too. And you may have seen him on LinkedIn with his signature red cap and red braces and his very provocative posts. So welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So we've got an audience of mostly independent agency owners and account managers. From the agency owner's perspective, typically they've got an agency maybe of between 10 and 50 people on average, and a lot of selling and the role of selling is down to them. So could we kick off with the question to both of you, really? What are some principles that you can share with them? Because they're short on time and they need to kind of ensure that the 20% they're doing when selling their services is going to get 80% of the result. So can you kick us off with some really good tips and principles for them to go by? Marcus can go first because he's the grown-up here. So, Okay. Well, the first thing is work out what your job to be done is. What are you trying to accomplish with your business? And does everyone in your business understand that that is the job that you're all serving? If there's any ambiguity, you will create politics, you'll create blame, you'll create people whining, moaning, bitching, and making excuses. And that's going to cost you money. Then ask yourself this question. What am I not seeing? Why am I wrong? Who knows better than me? And develop some intellectual humility. Founders have a tendency to develop a hero complex, whatever their industry, because it's their baby. And like a first-time parent, your ugly child is beautiful to you. And you have a particular vision. But the problem is that you don't know it all. And if you've hired people, those people have experience and expertise and insight and creativity and a voice. And if you micromanage or rescue or you control and you stifle any of that, and then you play the victim and tell everyone how hard you're working and how unfair it all is that they're taking your payroll and they don't understand, when you behave abysmally, Look in the mirror, spend some time in reflection, slow down and don't break the Jimmy Carr rule. So pause. What do you mean by the job to be done? Let's be explicit, because I know that comes from a book, doesn't it? A very famous book. But 
I could be wrong, Marcus, but just to, to clarify. Well, jobs to be done theory basically says that every business, every organization serves a job. Now, if you are a founder, it may be to solve a particular problem for a particular type of customer and do so in a unique and valuable, incontrovertibly valuable way. Now, that's how you might start out. Then you get sucked in to the myth of the unicorn and funding. And so all of a sudden, instead of now the job to be done serving the customer, it's serving the valuation target. Now, that's why you end up losing a lot of really good talent in early stage businesses when they get bought and sold by venture capital or private equity. And the job to be done needs to be clear. And this speaks to any leadership position. In fact, in life in general, ambiguity is the mother of all FUBARs. It's the mother of uh, confusion, mismatched expectation. It's conflict in waiting. And there's an old Persian proverb, which is better an early war than a late peace. Okay, you're going to fight. Have the fight up front. Get a prenup. Agree what you want. Agree what you don't want. Establish clear boundaries. And create an organization that is designed to serve the job. Now, begin with your customer. Everything starts with the customer and you build out from there. But the problem is if you start with a product and then you're running around trying to look for a reason for someone to buy it, odds are you haven't thought about the customer. So just to give a little example, if I'm an SEO agency owner, the job to be done is to make money for a company. Yeah. Through... No, no one cares about SEO. Exactly. No one cares about click-throughs. They care about the conversions, but... Let me just throw a spanner in the works for all of you hero marketers out there who think that what you're doing is the right thing. And I'm going to really piss you off. Okay. A 3% click-through rate with a 15% conversion rate would be considered by most agencies and most VPs of marketing and CMOs as a gold standard campaign. Would that be a fair statement? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, the problem with sales and marketing and leadership and investors and people like us, more often than not, is that we don't really think about the consequences beyond uh, the immediate short-term gain. So let's do some maths. 3% times 15% means that you generated revenue, which is the reason I spent money on your advertising. I wanted to generate cash. I didn't want click-throughs. I wanted money in the bank. I wanted customers. That's the job to be done by your work in SEO, in digital marketing, and every other form of branding and advertising and all that shit. The purpose of it is to make me money. So when you have a 0.0045% success rate, and you consider that to be a gold standard, I think you need a bloody good look in the mirror, and you need to be ashamed that you're willing to settle for that. Because that's just the beginning, because the ripple effect of that is when you throw the leads that you didn't convert over the fence to your salespeople, they on average at the moment have to follow up with six to 11 touches to try and get an effective conversation. Now, this was pre-2023 drop, bottom falling out of cold prospecting. And that, by the way, is down 70%, according to a $3.5 billion pipeline that's been anonymized with 364 SaaS companies. These are meant to be the best in sales. Ha <laughs> ha. Okay. Now, six to 11 touches with 15 manual dials an hour means my salespeople are never going to build a relationship with anybody. They're going to spend their life chasing people who are at best lukewarm and mostly cold. And they're going to have to try and sift out all the crap to try and find the occasional nugget of gold in there. And then, wait for it, they have to have 14 effectives to get one first meeting, and they blow seven out of eight of those. And then they throw the ones that they did close because they discounted like they were on a drought. They were running around like blue-arsed flies trying to sell to anyone, so they did, whether they should or not. And they chuck all of those over the fence to CS, who now has a bunch of tickets open from day one with poor fits and a bunch of uh, churn risks, which then affects the bottom line. 15% churn means you have to replace 49% of your customers every three years. And to get one, you've just heard the palaver. If you're having to replace half of them, 
Is it any wonder that shareholder value is not being met? So that's the big myth that we've got to tackle. And that's the problem. Okay, Benjamin, let's bring you in here. I'm going on mute. (laughs) (laughs) So Benjamin, I mean, you've obviously worked with loads of marketing agencies yourself. So you understand the problem. I mean, from your perspective, what would be your kind of go-to pieces of advice in terms of you know, what should they stop doing? What should they start doing? These agency owners, that it's down to them at the end of the day to generate sales for their agency. So I'll address this to the agency broader. So I spent 10 years in business development and advertising in London. And I don't want it to sound really fancy and sexy. I was a telephone monkey. I could get in front of marketing directors, brand managers. One of my talents was getting people to meet with my clients. And I thought that working in one of the most creative cities in the world with some of the best advertising agencies in the world, and London has a lot of them, that these guys would know how to sell. I mean, these are advertising agencies. He said, these people spend their lives telling other people how we could make you money. So my surprise when I started working with them, that none of them had a bloody clue how to sell. And this is it. I didn't know how to sell, but I knew what they were doing was wrong. And ironically, all of us met through advertising agencies. That's how the three of us got connected. So I would get these meetings and I would ask my clients, how was the meeting? Oh, it's good. It's good. I go, why? They go, well, they liked us. Ah, they were impressed with what we had to say. And I said, so what next? Well, they don't have anything for us now. And I go, well, what was the point of that? Benjamin, we got our foot in the door. That's what this is. It's about relationships. It's about nurturing and we'll get something, but they know we exist. And they were happy with that. Now, I was happy getting the meetings to do that because as long as they got in front of the, the marketing director at Coke or at Pepsi, they were happy. Selling wasn't even the end goal. It was literally to get in front of these people to talk about themselves. And they all followed the same structure because I started going on these meetings. I said, look, can I come on these meetings? Because I want to see what you're doing because I get all these meetings, but none of you seem to make any money, but you keep saying they're great meetings. And I would go on these meetings. And they all did the same thing. They take their laptop and they've got this beautiful creds presentation. They spent hours, days laboring over it, making sure the punctuation's accurate, getting all the branding. And they start off with, this is why we were founded. These are our ethos, our values. This is what we aspire to. So they got all that vomit dribble. And then they give you all the stats. And then they give some case studies. This is what we did for Nestle. This was the brief. This is what we did. And this is the outcome. And I go through that and everyone's listening and the marketing director will be, well, that's interesting. They'd be asking questions. So how would you do that? If you were with us, what sort of approach? And they're going on and on and on, asking all these questions. And everyone's getting on well. And you get to the end of the meeting and the marketing director says, well, look, I don't have anything for you now, but you're definitely on my radar. Or actually, I've got a brief. Would you mind going away, working for free to come up with some ideas on what you think you would do for us if we were to work with you? That would be gold. They would push everything aside and they'd spend days for free giving away their ideas and initial thoughts. Now, I'm a prospect and I'm not an idiot. And if I had a brand I wanted to market, the first thing I'd do is I'd invite four or five advertising agencies to come and see me because I know one thing. They won't shut up about telling me how they can help me. And between all of them, I won't need any of them. And so many advertising agencies used to say to me, I used to ask them, have you ever seen your ideas nicked? Every, oh, yeah, it happens all the time. So why the fuck do you keep giving them away? Oh, this is the way you got to do it. This is what you got to do. So they have this mindset. And creative people by nature are pathologically driven to be accepted and liked and loved. Their entire existence is predicated on other people's validation. So they're not in there to sell. They love going home and saying, look, honey, I can't feed the kids. But I tell you what, they like me out there. Yeah. And so they live. And so my job when I work with them is like, you've got to stop all this bullshit. You've got to start figuring out why are we here? Do they have budget? How are they going to make the decision? When are they going to make the decision? Who else are they talking? Why did they approach us? Why? Get them to drill down to figure out what the hell is going on. But they don't want to do that because they're scared of upsetting. They're scared of coming across bad. They hate to challenge. Most people don't like confrontation, so they avoid it. I remember one client lost pitch level. You know this if you're in advertising. You got all the way to final stage. And you always lose by just, it was, it was so close. It was always Wait a second. Oh. Yeah, it, it's a well-known phrase. We came second. Oh, yeah, don't worry, we came second. No, 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 it's, we came a close second. Close, close second. second. It was a really tough decision. And then you yeah. get to, sometimes if you're fortunate, you get a bit of a debrief. And this client, I admit, this was for a car company. And I got all the way, they spent about 25 grand developing their campaign and the pitch, and they lost. And I said, why'd you lose? And I remember it to this day, the CEO said, uh, the reason we lost is the company we were up at, the other agency, they had previous forecourt experience. 
And I said to him, can I ask you a question? I said, right at the beginning of this process, when you asked them, is the fact we've never worked with a car company, is the fact that we don't have any experience in selling vehicles on a floor, is that going to be a reason why you can't hire us? And he said, no, I didn't ask that. And I said, why not? And the God's honestness was his answer. He said, I was hoping it wouldn't come up. <laughs> and this, this is how they behave. They're so yeah. narcissistic in their belief that people will just love them for their creativity, that the practical realities that people make decisions on won't apply. And this is why they're so infuriating. Right now, you're probably listening to this and thinking, oh, fuck, that's exactly what we've just done. We're in the middle of a pitch. We haven't asked certain questions because we were scared to hear the answer. Because we always hope that if we do enough, the things that why we can't work together will be dismissed. It doesn't work like Occasionally it does. And salespeople have this, this, this ludicrous notion they hold on to the one time it worked for dear life. They always hold on to the everyone else, it's the exception. To them, no, I'll hold on to that experience. That's why they suck. Lovely. Now it kind of leads me on to what I saw Marcus do, actually, when we were all working together. There was a mutual friend that we had, I'll call him M, who was going to a pitch. But Marcus coached him and said, right, we're going to do it differently. And Marcus, I'd love you to, if you can remember the story of he he didn't take a presentation, all the things that Benjamin was just explaining about. I, I can't remember the specific example, but I can I can draw on thousands. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the reality is that when we're going into meet a, a buyer, our intent matters because we get reflected back what we project out. Now, if we show up and we put the buyer on a pedestal, we create this parent-child dynamic. And the moment we take the position of the child, we abdicate, we give away our power. What we're trying to do is create equal business stature, different roles working towards the same job to be done. If you do this, it's frictionless. Because what you're doing is you're going to tap into the way the brain actually works and turn that to your advantage. It's not manipulative because what you're doing is you're enlisting the buyer to share confidences with you, to tell you what their vision is, to help you understand what it is they really are trying to accomplish. Because I've yet to come across any anybody who brings me anything other than symptoms or nirvana. They never bring me the real problem. The real problem, you have to be patient and you have to peel away the layers of misunderstanding and their biases and their filters and their fears and their unreal expectations and their lack of resources. We need to start helping people understand we operate in a system. People don't buy our product. No one in all of my 35 years doing this has ever once bought training or coaching from me. They bought a better future. They bought an outcome. They wanted to go through the process of change. But the problem is that people are under the misguided belief that people fear change. We don't fear change. We fear the uncertainty that comes with it. Since I popped out my mother's womb, I've changed quite a lot. I've gone through transformation, metamorphosis. I've evolved. Experiences have shaped me. And as a seller, if I turn up not really appreciating this, then I'm going to miss the really interesting, important stuff. I've got to be honest, making a sale doesn't even give me a boost anymore because that doesn't interest me. What does interest me is knowing I'm going to make an impact. When I get a report back from someone I worked with five and a half years ago, and we've worked on and off since, and she's running one of the largest channel operations in tech across EMEA. She has two toddlers, and her words are that she does her job almost every day in eight hours whilst raising a three- and a six-year-old, and her husband's feedback to her is, you know, the thing that's different about you is you always seem to be present and be joyous whatever you're doing. Now, for me, that is success. Not the money. I don't care about it. I mean, the money's easy. I just sell something. But if you're turning up with that as your intent, and it's to serve somebody, it's to really make a contribution and do so in a meaningful way, that I think brings some real sense of purpose to what we do. I've got a 40% close rate from people coming to me cold. The top end is about 3% for cold. 
So, Marcus, you have and you and Benjamin have a natural curiosity. So I can see yeah. in a in a, a first meeting scenario, you're really you do have that intent, both of you, and you really want to understand the, the core problem. We've been talking about, you know, what's the outcome that they want to achieve. I mean, talk us through, you know, how do you end up getting your prospect to open up to you about the problem? I mean, let's just start there because someone listening to this that's perhaps not as seasoned doing selling as you are, a little bit lacking confidence, thinking, just give me a bit of a roadmap to kick me off with. Benjamin, we'll pop into role play then. So you're an agency owner, 50 people, you're doing about two and a half million, you're kind of flatlining, the market's turned, you've lost a couple of customers. Fair kind of scenario, Jen? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Benjamin, we'll skip the preamble and yeah, all yeah. that. Um, so tell me something. It's three years from now. Yeah. And everything's gone according to plan. Tell me, what's the agency giving you in life? What it's everything's gone right. Describe the the life it's able to afford you. Well, if it's going according to plan in three years, first of all, the business will be in a position where someone would want to make an offer for it. I built this to exit. This isn't going to be my life. So I'm not wedded, as you say, to exiting in three years. I'd like it to be in a position where if the offer arose, that I could take it. So that's one. And obviously, I live a comfortable lifestyle now, but I fund that like a lot of people through mortgages and whatnot. So whilst I live a comfortable life, I need to maintain a certain level of income. Obviously, my kids go to private schools and there's all the expenses associated with that. So I need to make enough dividends and whatnot and salary to feed that. I also need to save for a pension. Because when will the business be in a position where someone offers it? So over the next three, I need to be in a position where I can fund my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. My wife doesn't have to work. She doesn't work now. She doesn't want to work. So I want to maintain that. And I want to be in a position where I have the freedom, the choice. If someone says, we'll give you X, I can say fine. Or I can say, you know what? No, I want to hold out for more. That sounds like a really strong, solid vision. Tell me something. What's the number on that check? that they would need to give you for you to just hand them the keys, walk away and say, thank you very much. And I, move on to the next phase yeah, of your life. Yeah, yeah. I sat down and figured that out. And after tax, yeah. so I need to, I probably need to find a really good tax accountant before we do this. But after tax, I'd like to clear 10 million. That You'd would like be, to clear 10 million. So 10 million, that would be we're going to be having to look at around 15. 15, give or take, yeah. Okay. And for you to get to 15, yeah, where are you now? Well, as you said, the turnover is around three million a year. About three million. So, so you I don't know what that is on the EBIT data thing. I don't know. I'm not a financial whiz, but, okay. but I know you, it's you, not enough. I know I need to get to at least a turnover of ten million for someone to okay. be. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you you've got a five x in three years to meet your objectives, yeah. and if you do that, tell me what'll be good about that. Like I said, money gives you freedom to make choices. We all know this. We're smart men. We both know that money doesn't make you happy, but it certainly makes life easier. So I want to be in a position where, again, it's the choice. I may not sell. That's the thing. I want the option of being able to sell. And that is what I'm after. Okay. So what I'm hearing actually is this is really about agency. This is about having the choice and then getting there with the peace of mind, the certainty that. If you want to, you can walk away because you're not emotionally attached. But in the meantime, it sounds like you want to have some fun along the way. A lot of fun. And I want to build up a team around me. I want to be able to be hit by the number 10 bus and know that this business will continue without me being around. Now, that's hard because I'm a bit of a control freak. Okay. Uh, but I know, I've read it on LinkedIn, good leaders like to hire better people than them. So that's mm-hmm. what I need to be doing over the next few years. So I can okay. literally extra care or take on a chairmanship role pop in once a fortnight have a chat and take my dues okay so can i ask you a question that may cause you some offense uh, go for it when was the last time you took direction from anyone it's been a long time i have a partner and we discuss things but mm-hmm. direction yeah no it would be a while because yeah. Let me ask a better question then. When was the last time you asked anyone for help? Oh, that would be a while. When was I the last time you showed vulnerability within your own team? Well, I'm a soft, cuddly kind of guy, but no, I don't show vulnerability much to my team because, you know, I feel I need to maintain a certain... Okay. Well, t- yeah, tell me something. Yes. Yes. If, if I were to ask a cross-section of random 10 people in your firm what the job to be done is, why the agency exists, what would they... Tell me, would they all tell me the same thing 
or would they all have a different version of it? You know, I can't answer that question because I would assume, actually, never assume, but it would be that it would be the principles and the values that we've espoused as to why we do what we do. But I've never, okay. never actually individually asked them why they're oh, here. Why they're let's, let's just check to see if there are a couple of symptoms. Do you or your managers complain about upward delegation, people not taking responsibility, not taking initiative, and then they pass the responsibility up to you guys and you guys tend to be a bottleneck inadvertently. You're trying to help. You're doing your best. Any of that happening? It does happen. It does happen. I would, I would be allowed to say that doesn't happen. It's not a, a daily. But, not often. but it does happen, yes, yes. Okay. Without doubt. And, and, and further down the chain of command, is it happening more than it's happening to you? Yes. I think things get stopped before they get to me. So when was the last time you communicated the intent of what you're doing for whom, why you exist, what it is that makes you the provider of choice for your ideal customer. Probably at the last annual sort of get-together. Okay. How's that working out for you in terms of your marketing, your pipeline? Well, agency work, as you know, can be rather up and down and inconsistent. One minute you've got too much on and you're struggling to fulfill it, and then the next there's a bit of a drought. So uh, it's pretty common in the industry, though. Okay. Yeah, pipeline. pipeline's always an issue, though. How, how long has that been going on for? I'm curious. Uh, that sounds like that might be a perennial problem. It's, I'd say it's fairly consistent. It's just part of the game. It's not just you, it's the industry. Uh, I think so, from the experience and conversation I have with other agency owners, they okay. are able to express similar what if I told you it doesn't have to be this way? There's a, a wonderful Buddhist maxim, which is the pain is inevitable, the suffering is not. <laughs> and what if I could find a way to help you eliminate the suffering, despite the context in which you have to occupy? Well, and you're able to get to that 5x in the next three years with a reliable process that delivers certainty in terms of growth, profitability, meeting the metrics that you need to for the valuation so that if you do get hit by the number 10 bus, um, you are not required to stay on in an earnout where they will bleed you dry and squeeze all the profit out of you. Because let's face it, as an agency owner, have you ever heard of someone working an earnout and getting the deal that they were promised? No, there is a lot of... Uh... Okay. So if you're going to exit, would it be fair to say that the only reasonable outcome there is a check and you walk away clean. That would be the ideal scenario, I guess. Okay. So what's preventing you from uh, achieving that now? Well, consistency in sales. Uh -huh. And obviously a lack of consistency means it's harder to invest in growth, so you can't make structural changes. So yeah, I guess everything ultimately always comes back to sales in this case. Okay, but there's a ripple effect, and that's a single point of failure that you've identified. And if we can unlock that then it frees up the rest of your organization to actually be billing 80, 90% of the time at full rate card and not having to bid for your own work. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, okay. So if we can create that kind of environment, hmm. is there any reason why you wouldn't be willing to take direction? It's an appealing proposition, so I'm not adverse to taking direction if it'll achieve outcomes that will benefit <laughs> the business and myself as a whole. So no, I'm certainly open to direction. Okay, so just so we're clear, uh, the decision is always yours. Yes. My job is not to be your friend. My job is to challenge you, and it's to be the slightly uncomfortable Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, reminding you of why you're doing things and when you're going to get in the way. And one of my clients recently did a study for his master's degree, and he studied 121 high-profile business failures. Do you know what one of the most common problems was? Three bad decisions in a row was enough. That's all. So you make a bad decision in terms of your focus or the way you're going to go to market. Then you throw a load of money at it. And when it's not working, you throw more money at it because the reaction to the earlier one, the 3% times the 15% is normally throw more money at the top of the funnel instead of ask the really sensible question, which is how do we convert two out of eight instead of one out of eight first meetings mm -hmm. that doubles the bottom of the pipeline for no cost. Doesn't sell more digital advertising though. No, fair enough. Can I interject? What about if Benjamin at this point says, well, 
you know, you've said to me, let's suppose we could fix this for you and get you to the point you want to be. Is there any reason why, you know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be open to a discussion about that? And he's obviously said yes. Yeah. But then, Benjamin, I mean, I don't want to put thoughts in your head. No, no, no. Go what, what if you start to think, well, it's the first time I've met this guy. He's painting a picture of potential Nirvana. But, you know, has he done this before? You know, what credentials does well, he have? So I don't want to put words in your mouth, Benjamin. No, please, please. Playing no, it forward. No, 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 no. Yes, because when you do role it's, play, it's you have to pick a scenario. So there yeah. are multiples. There's always multiple. Yeah. Yes, you are right. So I could be less. I've been quite convivial in this exchange because we wanted to right. what do his thing. But no, you'll meet people that are far more pugilistic. Yeah, uh, just go for it. So rewind to that point. The reason I'm doing this is because I think agency owners, this is really useful because they're going to be watching and picking up how they should be conducting these kinds of meetings with their clients. Part of me is thinking, well, that sounds all very good, mate. It almost sounds like Nirvana. It sounds like you're selling me the gold-plated. And frankly, I I, I just don't know any agencies that do that. I don't Mm -hmm. see how you could do that. It all sounds very good. And yes, I love the fact you've tied in where I want to go. Very good. I like all of that. I get it. But that doesn't help me realize how are you going to get me that? I don't see how you're going to get me there. I just don't get it. It's nice, but yeah. So what's your question? So how can you prove to me that this will work? I mean, because it seems like this is a lot that's got to go on here, and I, I just can't. Okay. How are you going to make my sales guys better? Because that's what this boils down to, isn't it? It's yes and no. It's part of it. Let me ask you this. Is the problem really your sales guys? I would say not selling is, because that's what they're paid to do. Yeah, but you're answering a different question. I asked you, are they the problem? Are they the problem? Well. I pay them to get in front of people. Who hired them? Who hired them? Well, I did. And, uh, who manages them? I don't manage them on the day-to-day basis. but ultimately, Who manages the people who manages them? I guess, yes, I see where you go. It who, hired the, who hired the managers? I did. Who sets the compensation plan? A committee. Who determines what is measured? A committee, again, we agree. Okay. And as the owner, because I'm guessing you're the principal here, yeah. given that you're the one walking away with a 15 million, are you abdicating control? Are you really focused on measuring for the right reasons? Or are you measuring because that's what everyone else does? No, I've given my people the resources and the tools to get on with their job. And I stay back. So I'm not constantly, I don't get involved in the day-to-day sales of things because that's why I've hired the Fabulous. They're all very good. Yeah, so, okay. so no, I have- I, I take your point. But my question is, you are still the one who at the end of the day is accountable to God and the bank manager. True. Now, if the numbers aren't there, you have to make some difficult decisions and lay people off. But I'm asking the question because I think you're looking in the wrong place. What if that wasn't the problem? Okay. And what would it be then, uh, well, other than me? Well, apart yeah, from you, right. one of the things is that it, everything stems from you. But I suspect your managers are probably trying to manage the numbers. I think they're probably playing a numbers game. They're going for as many pitches as they possibly could, and they're pitching without really qualifying whether the other person, the buyer, has paid the price to be pitched. I, I remember what I agree. That's a possibility, which means they're not doing their job properly because that's yeah. what they're paid to do. But you're missing cause and effect. Do you want to be right or do you want to get the right outcome? I want to get it the right outcome. Right. So let's park your ego for a moment and think about why do they behave in the way that they do and what behavior do we want them to exhibit instead? Let's look at the solution, okay? So it's six months from now. Yes. We've turned the ship, okay? What is it that your salespeople are going to do differently to what they're doing now? Well, again, that's what I was hoping you were going to tell me. Well, what do you want to see different? What's the response well, that they're getting? I, I, I feel like we're going around and chasing the tail here. Um, Benjamin. I know what we need for them to be closing more. I hired people. Right. That okay. Right. To do now we're thing. getting somewhere. Why are they not closing? Well, this is it. This is a question I need to ask them. Well, I have asked them, and they give the usual BS. Okay. So tell Which me. I don't accept. When you way. when you spoke to your customers and yeah. your prospects yeah. to find out why they bought from you or yeah. why they didn't buy from you as the CEO of your agency. Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn? Well, I don't talk to people we didn't work with, but I have talked to customers, obviously, because I like to keep my finger on the pulse. And why did they buy from us? Don't tell me because they liked you or because you were creative, because neither of those are the real reason. So after getting an award. Okay, right. So why did they buy from us? I guess 
ultimately because we presented them with a solution they believed would work, and it did. Right. So we were able to demonstrate before we started with them why what we do would work. And how has that resulted in an expansion business? What do you mean? Where you've been selling to other parts of their ecosystem, to organically to them, to their alumni, to their family tree, to their customer's customer, to their partners, their channel. What are you doing to exploit that? You've done a great job. They love you. You've given them the outcome. And you're telling me that your salespeople are sat there without business coming in and you're sitting on a gold mine. Tell me what you've done. Oh, I see. So how have we grown out these existing customers? Yeah, your top, to, your top 10, uh, 10% of accounts, how much of your uh, turnover do they account for? Uh, I'd say over half. Okay. And what are you doing to ensure that no one of them accounts for more than 12% because that represents an existential threat to your business? Yeah, okay. No, no fair point. We could probably grow the accounts out more. Okay. Well, which I would assume they're trying to do anyway. But again, that's an assumption. Really? Stick so on that. Yeah. Well, again, it's what, their what, job. Okay. Well, wait, wait for it. Wait for it. Tell me when they report on a monthly basis. What do you see on that report? What are the numbers that they're showing you? Well, Revenue. Yeah. Appointment. Pipeline. Pipeline. And they're probably talking about first meetings, pitches. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. How does any of that data help your salespeople understand how to move the sale forward? That data doesn't help them. It helps me get a snapshot of where we're at. Now, I know we're going. You you have a CRM system, so you can try and give yourself the illusion of control, which is not working. Now, what we're coming back to is the skills and the abilities of the people doing their jobs. Yes, but if you don't get the inputs right into a system, and that's stuff like mindset, culture. When you sat down with your managers and discussed with them, what they thought the rights of their salespeople were in front of the customer. Yeah. Well, now we're moving, I can see we're moving into the behavioral side of things. And you're right. I don't disagree with you. The problem is that the people that are employed to do this job are obviously not doing it well enough. Because? I need that fixed. Right. Okay. So it's, is, it, is it their mindset? Is it their behaviors? Is it their habits? It could be all of those things. And that's why Probably we're talking. Right. Okay. That's why we're talking, yes. So have I managed to help you overcome your initial resistance and skepticism that maybe I know my shit? Because it seems that you were resisting earlier and you were about to ask me, have I ever worked in media? Because that's normally sure, the kind of come up. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. If I told you no, what would you say? I'm going to be blunt. I don't really think not working in media is really a huge issue. I mean, selling, selling, right? I'm slightly different from other people in the world of advertising. I don't think there's anything particularly special. At the end of the day, if we get to the final decision and your pen is hovering over the agreement, which we've hammered out that both of us would sign up to 100 times in a row in an instant without any hesitation, because it's that kind of deal where both of us get our outcomes met. Yes. Yeah? Yes. And then you'd say, well, you haven't got any media experience. Would you then say that's a deal breaker? No, it's not a deal breaker. Right. Now, there must be a reason why you asked. I didn't ask you, have you had media experience? You asked me, was I going to ask? Well, let's pretend. There must be a reason why you were going to ask. Uh, I don't know if I was. Um, but <laughs> For the purposes just, of the role play, we've Benjamin. We've <laughs> just gone round the houses, and I've just said it, it's not a deal breaker, so it's a move. No, 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 I, I understand, but for the purposes of the role play, let's pretend that you Oh, have... in the role. I'm, I'm quite the pugilistic. Yeah, I'm quite right. enjoying this. I don't often get to be a prospect. It's quite a lot of fun. I, <laughs> yeah. I forgot you, what you might learn something. It's enjoyable. I love it. <laughs> love the it. Best, the best position to be is either observer or um, prospect when you're yeah. role-playing, because that's when you learn what it's like to buy from you. Well, it is. And I think this is. I think we, we've probably done enough for yeah. Jenny's audience. Uh, but, yes, and if people are watching it, they can see what you're doing. It's really good. And it's challenging. And this is one of the things I teach. If someone's going to give you a lot of money and you're expensive, I'm expensive, you need to be able to look them in the eyes, parity for parity, equality, and you got to make me feel somewhat uncomfortable i've got to feel challenged because why would i give you a load of money if you're spawning or sucking up telling me what i want to hear and a good decision maker knows that they need to be challenged and pushed absolutely so, i'll give you a great most people don't do that most don't most advertising agencies don't do that it's all about oh no we can help we can oh of course we can no we can make it easy yeah 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 it's the most orgiastic experience of oh it's, it's onanistic yeah. Basically, yeah. it's all about self, you know, giving themselves strokes. I, I, I remember M, who put the two of us together, he introduced me to his CEO at his PR agency. And it's a big part of WPP, 
big agency, well-known. And 18 minutes in, I had to ask the CEO, X, um, I've got to ask you a really difficult question, and I think you're going to be offended by it. And she said, no, no, I'm fine. Are you sure? Because it's a doozy. You really need to be sat down for this one. And she said, no, no, I'm fine. Go go ahead. Anyway, I sort of laid it on a bit with a trowel. And I said, what's the probability that you're still going to be in post within the next six months? And there was about a minute silence. And she sort of felt really uncomfortable. And so did I. About 50-50. And she brought me in. And two weeks later, she was fired. Now, I saw it coming. It was obvious. I I had an accountant who came to me and said, yeah, well, we've got long-term clients, 17 years, 10 years. Decided not to work with me. Two weeks later, 17-year and 10-year both fired her, and then we started working together. Her turnover doubled, her profit doubled, and she went from a 17 to 21-hour working day, six days a week, to a nine-hour working day. And it comes down to being willing to ask these tough, challenging, uncomfortable questions. I, I Again, I've got so many similar stories. Uh, there was one I remember in front of a CEO of a waste management company. As we're going through this process of trying to figure out why I was there, it felt all wrong to me. Everything, it sounded so awful. So I said to him, I remember this, and most salespeople be too chicken shit to say this. I looked at him and I said, look, I need to ask you a question, but I'm scared that if I do, you'll punch me in the face. And he said, just ask me. I said, are you sure? I said, it's a humdinger. And he goes, go for it. Now, now once someone's given you permission, uh, unless it's about their wife, you can pretty much say anything at this point. <laughs> and I just turned to him. I said, okay, this is my question. I looked at Daniel. I said, why don't you just quit? And he looked at me, and I still remember to say, he gave me a smirk. He goes, you know, it's funny you asked me that. Because I tended my resignation two weeks ago. Yeah. I said, I had a feeling. Okay, can I ask one more question then? I said, I go, you can't buy from me, can you? He goes, no. And it was meeting ended. And then he said, well, I'll tell you what. He goes, I wish I'd met you six months ago. I'm going to write an email to the board to tell them to continue this conversation. And I said, can I, one more thing? I said, what are the odds of the board taking advice from a man that's quitting in the middle of this? And he goes, yeah, probably not a lot. I said, should we just call it a day? And we left, parted ways. And had I not had the courage to ask that question, I would have come out of there thinking, this is going to be a golden opportunity. There's so much here for me to fix. And like I said, agencies don't do that. They're scared. I think this is what I think the takeaway is going to be when people listen to this. All right. So instead of just telling people what they should do, first of all, Marcus has just shown you what to do through modeling the types of questions. And Benjamin, you played a brilliant role there. But, you know, asking the quality of questions you are judged on, aren't you? It's not the answers you give. And I think Benjamin started talking about, you know, you go to a pitch usually and you show up and throw up talking about your ugly kids. But actually what we're demonstrating here is the art of selling is to ask really good questions. And sometimes they're direct, some assumptive. Go on, Marcus, jump in. That's one really important component. But what I've realized is that it's a pyramid. You've got listening and active listening is the death of deep listening. Stop doing this manipulative NLP active listening shit. You look like a twat. You make other people feel really uncomfortable and you drive them into the arms of your competition after having spent money acquiring them as leads. Don't do it. Okay. Deep listening starts with your intent. Actually give a flying fuck about what they want. Care about them, their outcome. And remember, they're only going to rent your outcome. I remember when you and I worked together and these words came out of your mouth and I've quoted them many times. Okay. And you should cringe. And they are, you are never more than three years from being fired by a client. Now, that happened time and time again. They weren't just your words. I heard that for 15 years in media agencies, from big PR agencies to one-man bands, from everything from medical to finance to packaging and everything else. There was a program called The Pitch on Channel 4 in the 2000s. I bought myself a rubber brick because I was about to put my foot through the TV. It was a miracle (laughs) it survived. I was so incensed by the robbery, the absolute gall of the buyers and the stupidity of the agencies, the the vileness of the leaders um, saying to people, if you don't come in, you're going to put your phones in here. And for the next two weeks, all we are going to do is bleed ourselves dry in order to give our stuff away for free and not win it. 
and you can't see your kids. I don't care that it's their birthday. Well, that's obscene, and I've seen that happen in agencies. They're always pulling all-nighters. That's obscene and irresponsible. Well, let me make a point, Marcus. There's actually a bit of a movement within the agency industry at the moment about this very thing and about the impact on mental health. Like, it was never talked about in my day, but it's being talked about a lot now. Like- 60% of sales managers are today suffering from a stress-induced mental condition that is health-threatening. And on average, they have six to seven direct reports. In the United Kingdom, there are 2.4 million accidental managers. These are people who are scoffing their Weetabix, avoiding speaking to anybody one morning. They got tapped on the shoulder and told, Jenny, I need a word. And your heart sinks thinking you're going to get fired. Bad news sinks a little bit further. We've just had to fire your idiot boss. Good news. You're the idiot boss. Off you go, sweetie. (laughs) And there you go. That's your runway into management. You've got to go from being an individual contributor to being a team player whose job it is to get everyone over the line. And who doesn't get any love and attention? Who is in the most precarious position of all? Managers. They can get fired. They can get sued. They can get penalized. They can get demoted. Their reputation can be shot to shit. But a good one makes all the difference. I think of someone like Adam Wilcox. He takes over his team as a brand new manager for the first time. They're a bit ahead, but he's working really hard. We start working together. He focuses on the medium-term pipeline, focuses on being absolutely transparent, honest. They always raise every objection. They tell the buyer why they shouldn't buy from them. They're 600% ahead of the market in only eight months. Sadly, his father died. He took a step back. Three months in with a new manager, they're operating at the same level that the rest of the market is. Now, therein is a major opportunity. Middle managers need to learn how to be coaches. They need to learn how to be decent human beings instead of supervisors with a machete or a gun. I've been in this business a long time now. I still don't know what a sales manager or a sales director actually does all day. Because they certainly don't train, they certainly don't coach, they don't prospect. They, I, I honestly, still to this day, I don't know what they do other than look at spreadsheets and yell at people when stuff is. Or go in for the close, the final meeting, yeah. where the glory steal the glory. There are two things that these people can do. The first thing is keep an energy diary, an energy journal. Every hour, get your alarm to go off and just track what you've been doing. And do you feel more or less energized than the last time? Give yourself a score maybe an identity score and a role score. How do I feel about who I am? And how do I feel about my role performance? And what's my energy score? Keep a track of that for two weeks, because chances are the stuff you're avoiding, procrastinating, doing a really bad job in, being a bottleneck, that's the stuff that drains you. Well, then create a blank page, put a, a rectangle in the middle, you know, two inches by three inches, and then draw bars so you've got quadrants on the outside. Top left, write the word doing. Top right, deciding. Bottom right, delegating. Bottom left, designing. And middle, developing. Okay, now, where do you spend your time during the day? Doing, or do you spend your time making decisions? Should you be the person making decisions? Would it be better if you trusted your people to make the decision and you move those down the chain of command in order to empower those people and free you up to do higher value work? So divide your tasks up into 10 pound an hour £100 an hour, £1,000 an hour, and £10,000 an hour. And then see where you are spending your time. Because if you're avoiding the 1000 and 10000 or you're not able to get to those, you have to ask the question, is there a better way of working? And the answer is yes. Calendar blocking. That's a start. Oh, I wanted to tap into something you said before about Adam. It's something I obviously yeah. teach and something I do. Telling people why they can't or shouldn't work with you is so powerful. Because most people leave or try to avoid that ever coming up? And what is the point of getting through the whole process to discover something that is a red light? See, some objections are red lights. They can't be moved to amber to green. They're absolutely solid. So why go through a whole sales process to get to the end to discover that that red light can't be moved? And I was going to say, I remember getting in front of a CEO. He did not want to be there because I refused to go on a sales meeting unless the MD or the CEO's there. There's no point unless the decision maker's ultimately there. He didn't want to be there. You could tell he was hostile. And I thought, well, bollocks to this. i got nothing to lose. So I said, look, I'll tell you why we're not going to work together. And I gave them the three reasons. And the beauty of it is, is they argue with you while you're wrong. <laughs> Every time. I said, do you know how expensive this is going to be? He said, what? I said, I, if we do this, you're going to give me at least 50,000 pounds. I guess that's a lot of money. He goes, no, it isn't. I said, yes, it is. He goes, we do 70 million a year. See, he's saying it, not me, right? Yeah. And then I, pointed, I said, do you know how long? That's this how is you find budget, by the way. Huh? <laughs> 
That's how you find budget, by exactly, not asking yeah. for budget. The, like, the, the kiss of death is banned. Budget yes. authority need and time. It's a great inward reporting structure, but when has a customer ever gained any insight or advanced their understanding or gained uh, some form of understanding about the cause and effect of their behavior or the, what's going on in their business? Not once has a bant question ever served the customer. No, no. Your questions must serve the customer. Deep listening, questioning, empathy, and acumen. All four have to be present. And the problem is no one teaches them in context with practice. And that's why no one ever does what they're trained to do. By acumen, you mean? Understanding the context in which the customer occupies and trades, the world that they compete in, the way their business operates, how businesses like theirs typically grow where they are in their life cycle. Are they startup continuation growth, hypergrowth, turnaround, or recovery? Where are they in their job function? In startup continuation growth, hypergrowth, turnaround, or recovery? Every product, every life cycle, they're systems. And all of this can be planned for. I've never once come across an industry where there are more than 30 objections that will ever come up, which means every one of those can be practiced in every different context. Yes, uh, it's something I do. We operate in a finite universe, and there's only so much a prospect can say to any question or any objection. that they Most of us will go blind, though. They're oblivious. And it's like, what, what have you been doing for the last five years? You've heard all of these before. Why do they always surprise you? Why do they catch you off guard? Because most salespeople don't try to learn their profession. They wing it. They wing it. And they're proud of that fact. There's something about it. Why did we win? Oh, you know, it's my winning personality. It's my, my understanding of the issues. No, no, seriously. Why did you win? That's the reason. But if you ask a lawyer or a good surgeon, why do you win cases? They don't say, well, you know, juries like me and I sort of look good in a wig. No, no, seriously, why do you win? <laughs> and they would say, do you know why I win? Do you know how many of these trials I've done? I know when to ask a question, when not to ask a question. I win to challenge evidence, when not to challenge evidence. I know when to sit down and shut up. I know when to make a look at a jury, when not to. I do this all day. It's choreographed. Nothing happens in that courtroom that I don't control. Salespeople, Ah, fuck it. I've done several of these before. You know, braces on. Let's just go in there and, yeah, she'll be right, mate. And it's awful. And that's why we're hated and loathed and people lie to us and manipulate us and cheat One us. One of the things I'm working on at the moment is creating a tool uh, and a way of assessing how people sell and their strategy. But what's really interesting is it's helping me to create a buyer safety score. Now, buyers buy for their reasons. And if we create any uncertainty, what the neuroscience tells us is the brain is then triggered to go into the worst case scenario. So we turn into chicken little. The sky is falling. Okay. So if you have a low risk threshold, let's say on a scale of one to 100, your tipping point is 14. Up to 13, you're okay. And you'll make the decision, you'll be okay with it. At 14, you tip, bang. And then all of a sudden, everything goes wrong. And what happens is you anticipate buyer's remorse. Now, there was a study done when the pandemic kicked in and lockdown was happening and everyone moved on to video. The people who wrote the challenges sale, Matt Dixon and his team, did some research in conjunction with Gong and they followed about two and a half million calls. And what was really fascinating about this was they started to get incredible insight and into why people buy and why people don't. One of the most interesting bits of data that came from this was that if there is swearing you have a 6% higher chance if the salesperson swears first of closing the business and 28% if the buyer swears first. Now, it seems counterintuitive, but what? Really? Why? As someone who's a bit salty mouthed, I, I appreciate this data. It validates me. But what's interesting is for someone to be that close, that intimate, that open, that vulnerable, yeah, that emotional, there has to be rapport. Now, we then look at Charlie Green's trust equation. Trust equals credibility plus reliability plus intimacy over self-orientation. Well, credibility and reliability are table stakes. Anyone turning up should be able to do the job, okay? If you're in SEO, you should be pretty good at SEO. And if you're not quite high ranking, then I've got a question, why not? And with, with that equation, the most important part is intimacy, because credibility is I can do what I say I can. Reliability is I do it, as I said I would to the time, budget, and et cetera. But intimacy is the thing that's the missing uh, link. And that's the difference between the top 4% above average performers, average performers, and low performers. It's the level of intimacy. And the level of intimacy comes from listening to people. 60% of all pipeline 
ends up in closed lost, no decision. So basically, they go through the process and then they end up in the status quo. Now, what we also know is that throughout the entire buying journey, which goes from realizing there may be a problem but can't quite put my finger on it and making space for it, to passively looking to learn how I might be able, what it is, all that kind of stuff, to then actively looking to see what my options are, to deciding where I'm making trade-offs, to my first use where my anticipated buyer's remorse could then be triggered and I'm in instant regret trying to get out of the deal, yeah? Uh, And then ongoing use, which is where all the money is, and this is where I have to create habit. Well, the problem is the way most marketing, the most sales approaches things is they bombard people wherever they are on the journey because they don't understand that their job is to turn up and be the guide, not the hero, and meet the buyer where they are, not where you wish they were, and to make sure that you turn up at their struggling moments or around their struggling moments so you can help them through that. Now, the best time to do this is in passive looking when there's no competition. So this is where Benjamin and I take a slightly different perspective because his customers are typically looking for something more transactional. I'm too lazy to be transactional. Uh, I would much rather, as I, I have not made a cold call since 2004 because I systematized referrals. I systematize, I've taken that to the next level. So now we have an ecosystem of adjacent providers, all of whom share our values, all of whom understand that the number one objective is to ensure that the customer's job gets done. And we've got certain rules about how we behave. No assholes, there's no room for ego. When it's, uh, never take advantage, even if you can. When it's your turn to lead, step forward. When it's not, step back. You know, stuff like this. And we buy into these values because if we're realistic, most organizations are far too complex to buy point solutions. They need their partners, their suppliers to understand that there are lots of moving parts. So that ripple effect of the 3%, 15% going through the organization, that has a massive impact on operations, on finance. It has an effect on reputation, on brand. Because if you're selling to people you shouldn't and they're churning, they're talking to people. There's a 3555 rule. If people like what you do, they'll tell three people. If they don't, they'll tell five. They'll tell 55 each. The word of mouth works in reverse. What, what are people saying behind your back? I think I'm from yeah. King. That's what I hear a muttering. <laughs> I suppose it, there's a place for both, don't you think, Marcus? Because, you know, yes. particularly when you're starting out, like if the listeners are maybe early into their agency ownership journey, they don't yet have a reputation or a referral network. They're building that up. Um, again, oh. I'm going to dispute that. Uh, Unless they're straight out of college, chances are, and it's not that difficult to build. If you are 22 and straight out of uni, the first thing you do is go onto LinkedIn and you contact agency owners who have agencies that you would aspire to run yourself. And then you write them this email. Jenny, cheeky ask, your history is my future. Um, Would you be my mentor for 20 minutes a month? I'll bring you my problem, the three things I've tried to fix it and why I believe they didn't work. And then you can tell me what I should do. And the next time I come back, I'll report back what I've done. Anytime I fail to do that, you can fire me. Now, three out of 12 will say yes, roughly. Now, you get three on board. Now you've got three mastermind mentors. Um, if you're in an agency and you're a 2 million agency and you want to be in a 10 million agency, find someone who's in a 10 million agency and get involved with them. Ask them to sit on your board. Go and sit on the boards of other agencies. Nice. So that they then will pass on referrals to you because they're... Well, not only that, learn how other people do things. As learn well as, yes. screw it up in different ways. Yep, yep. Could we go back a step to, yeah. to the intimacy, the, the trustworthiness yeah. equation, which is great. I'm familiar with it. And what Benjamin often talks about, like the purpose of a, of a cold call or the purpose, no, the purpose of the first meeting. Benjamin, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher your quote, but you say is to evoke emotion in the prospects, right? And I suppose I'm drawing a parallel with what you were saying, Marcus, about that intimacy piece, making someone feel so comfortable that they feel like they can swear. Like, is there a correlation between the two points? That's my question. Are, are you talking okay. to me or Benjamin? Well, both of you, but Benjamin, let's start with you. Can you clarify well, what you I use? I guess in say? many ways, the swearing thing's interesting because my clients and prospects naturally swear when they're around me because I've created such a character that they feel quite comfortable with it and they know i'm quite blunt so i have 
amazingly frank and open conversations with people that want to work with me. And I go into every meeting not trying to sell. I know that the art of a salesman is not trying to sell. In fact, I know there are more reasons why we shouldn't work together than why we should. So I'm going to go through those first. I'm going to give you every option. Do you know how hard it is to get someone not to buy from you when you keep trying to get rid of them? It is incredibly difficult. And I've signed up three clients in the last three weeks. Every one of them, I pushed them away as hard as I could. And they kept coming. Every objection I gave as to why you shouldn't use me. I mean, there was one. I won't mention any names in case they watch this, but they were very uh, what you call professional. And I was on the call with the CEO and the guy, one of his directors who'd said, I like this guy, we should we should get him. And so they set up the call. And I looked at them in a backdrop of London in the background and they're suited. And I just said, look, guys, before we start, I don't see how this is going to work. I said, how the fuck? And I said that. I've never been. How the fuck did you end up talking to me? Of all the sales trainers in the world, how on earth? And do you know what? The CEO argued with me why I shouldn't let their appearance bother them. He's convincing me why I shouldn't worry about what and the, the, the hardest things. The I'm hardest thing is keeping not, a straight face. I'm trying not to laugh here. And then the meeting was going on longer than expected. We get to near the end and the CEO says, look, I've got to go, Benjamin. And then he leans in. He goes, but I just want to say one thing. Again, just to remember, don't worry about what we look like. We need help. Oh. And, and it's just, and so because I'm, people say you're incredibly open and honest. Like, well, I've got nothing to lie about. I know what I teach is hard. I know it's going to take time. I know it's going to cost you a lot of money. And there are a lot easier ways to make money than fixing yourself. Put your prices up. Hire better salespeople. There's so many other ways to fix sales than using me. But if you're going to use me, you've got to be prepared that this is going to be an incredibly uncomfortable, eye-opening, challenging experience. That's what they want because they know we've got to the point they've got to change. So, yeah, I, I love the swearing thing because you are right. It does show into it shows they're relaxed, they're comfortable enough to feel that they can say things that well, you can't let me say that. But you you've made a really important point and you've illustrated it beautifully, which is that you are fully authentic in who you are. You are this all the time. Yes. I am this all the time. A limited number of people will appreciate that. And my view is that maybe 3% of the entire planet could possibly engage with me out of my total addressable market, which is half the population. So my job is to enlist people. My job is not to sell. My job is to facilitate the right decision for them, for now and the future. And it's got to work for both of us. And this is where people don't understand win-win. Win-win does not mean compromise. Win-win means that both sides get their needs met eventually without compromise, and both sides would willingly sign up to the same terms immediately without any hesitation at all 100 times in a row. If you are not creating deals that are that good, then you're doing it wrong. And you're you're creating work for yourself. It's such a good point. It's such a good point. Listen, there has been so much value in this conversation and I'm so sad that I have to wrap this up, but I am going to have to. I would love to have you both back on because, I mean, I just think there's just so much that you've shared and it's probably going to take a couple of listens for the people who are listening to this, the agency owners, because there are so many golden nuggets. So Marcus, Benjamin, thank you so much. Any parting words of advice or wisdom that you can share before we close? I was going to say, if there are any agency owners watching this and they want to talk further to me or Marcus, I can only end with this because I end it with everything that I do. Buy our stuff. (laughs) That's why we're here. Well, in, ser- in all seriousness, where can people get hold of you? Like Benjamin, start with you. What What's the best way, if anyone's listening, that's resonated? How can obviously they contact LinkedIn, you? So you can find me there. Um, obviously, UK's most hated sales trainer. You Google that and you'll get my website. You'll, yeah, it's, it's impossible not to find me. Yeah, that's how you find me. And Marcus. LinkedIn for me, the Inquisitor podcast with Marcus Cowkey. We've done over 500 episodes. And I had one guy contact me a, a month ago, Ed. And he said that he's been listening to two to three hours a day for the last three years, which, again, the listenership, they listen typically to two to three hours a week. But he's two to three hours a day. And in the last two months, he's carried the entire team quota of eight people. They're not selling anything he is. And he's done his two largest deals from what he learned from the podcast. So the podcast, I'm on Twitter, maybe for now. I'm not sure. It's just turned very Benjamin-y. <laughs> but yeah, and the Marcus at laughs-last.com. So we set the company up thinking that he who laughs last laughs longest. And that's the case. I mean, if you're not having a laugh when you're selling, 
this when you're true. planning, when you're strategizing, you are definitely doing it wrong. Because I spend 95% of every waking hour in a state of joy and happiness. And it's fun. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I, I know for a fact that me and Marcus have many differences and of opinions on a variety of things and how to do things. But I know the one thing we both share in common is both of us try so hard not to laugh when we're selling because we are having so much fun because we know what's going on. We know why we do it. And yeah, honestly, I, I've stopped even doing that because it, it's, there's no point. You just turn up and you be who you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when you are, you're so much happier. And the amount of effort that I don't have to make, I'm a big fan. So this is it. Carl von Clausewitz. He used to hire Prussian officers for laziness and high intelligence. You should do the same for salespeople. Minimum effort, minimum loss of life. Yeah. Nice quote to finish on. And I just want to say a final word. Having worked with both of you, having seen you both in action, I'm 100% behind my recommendation to work with either of you so if, if anything well absolutely and I don't give endorsements very often because I have to have seen it and experienced it with my own eyes for both of you I've worked with both of you and you are the utmost professionals and have made the biggest impact in my ever been accused well. of being professional <laughs> I was going to say that I've never been called a professional in my life professional taking... as in you know what you're doing you know what you're doing in sales <laughs> believe me I've worked with so many people who've got the sales in the title oh. but they've got no idea yeah. so I'm going to finish on those words Thank you both so much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed that slightly longer episode than normal and have come away with some useful tips for implementing into your new business process. And if you'd like to chat to me about selling skills for agency account managers to help you grow your existing client accounts, then you can go to my website, accountmanagementskills.com and find out more about how I help build an entrepreneurial mindset in account management through my training programs. I look forward to chatting to you on the next one.